The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. Amen, church. Well, let's pray together as we come again to God's Word. Oh, gracious Lord, we praise you that our hope is not dependent on our good works, on our, our heritage, on our own striving, but just as we sang, now and ever we confess that Christ is our hope in life and death. Lord Jesus, it's you. It's you alone. It's you alone that we have hope in. It's you alone that we have confidence that when you say that our sins are forgiven, that you have cast them as far as the east is from the west and into the depths of the sea, that it is true. And it is true. And we praise you. We thank you that it is. That it, that it is the case. That our sins, oh, our sins that were so wretched against you. You've wiped away. You've, you've ransomed us. You've rescued us. You've released us from our sin and you've given us to your Son. Amazing. Just thinking through this room of the testimonies of those who you've saved. Lord, what, a, what an amazing work. What an amazing work you've done. We praise you and we give you thanks. Now and ever we confess, Christ, you are our hope. You're our hope in life and death. Oh, what good news, Lord. Amen. Amen. Isn't it good news, church? So good to sing those songs with you. Oh. Well, please turn in your, in your Bible with me to 1 Peter again. Mm. First Peter. Chapter 1, and we'll read the first five verses together. Please read with me. What a, what a beautiful book this is, and I pray that it is a blessing to our hearts this morning as we draw near to the Lord. 1 Peter verse, chapter 1, verses 1-5. through five. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, or Bithynia, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. From the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Well, this morning it's a blessing to uh, to preach from probably what is one of my favorite books in the entire Bible. I find myself time and time and time again 
going back to this sweet letter from our dear brother, Peter. And he is a dear brother. And we're going to dive into these first two verses this morning. Phil and I were talking the last couple of weeks, uh, thinking through um, some messages. And as we think about Exodus, 1 Peter is this great uh, New Testament buddy to Exodus. It's written to exiles. It's written to those who have been brought out of a place and have been scattered to another place that is not their home and written to give them hope for life away from home. And that's the title of this morning's message, Christians Away from Home, or you could say Christians Away from Heaven. Last month, we had a church potluck. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, Did you know that? Maybe you knew that. There was probably a hundred or so of you there, uh, which tells me one of a few things. Either a lot of you didn't get the memo, uh, or you just don't like delicious food. Uh, Maybe you don't know that we have some of the best bakers in the county, uh, which is true, I think. Um, And I love potlucks. But the, the fact that there was only 100 people means that we missed a lot of you. And I know what you're thinking. Here goes Pastor Corey again, another plug for churchwide, you know, the churchwide email that goes out. Maybe you missed the reminder. There's lots of helpful reminders in there, ministry updates, ministry opportunities, and that you can sign up for at the kiosk. Or that you can call the church office at 530-677-4122 and get signed up for that. Uh, that's not what this is. It's not a reminder for those things. Uh, or maybe that, uh, that I'm going to say, well, you, we, we know we need fellowship, we need to build uh, godly friendships, biblical friendships, and potlucks and church gatherings are a great place to do that. Well, that's not what I'm doing either. While that's all true, uh, it's had me thinking, and of course, I, like I said, have lots of questions, don't you know, uh, don't you know what a potluck is? They're amazing. Uh, maybe you were afraid there wouldn't be enough gluten-free options for you. Maybe that's why you didn't come. I, I don't know. Whatever the issue is, there's lots of questions. But I've been thinking, sometime we need to have a pie-making contest. And potlucks are a great place for that, I think. And so, women's ministry, let's pray about this. But imagine if we had a pie-making contest. This would be great, right? Uh, If we had a pie-making contest, now, this would be a great event. You would all want to show up for that. But the grand prize of the pie-making contest, and we all get to participate in this pie-making contest, okay? Uh, Phil and I will judge, but we all get get to play. The grand prize was dinner with your favorite apostle, or dinner with an apostle. And I wonder, who would you choose? Who would you choose? And you never know what we're going to do in the church. We might have a pie-making contest. But I would wager that the majority of you, knowing the apostles, knowing the disciples, knowing the men that God sent out to be his messengers, would say, I would want to sit and have a meal with Peter. Because Peter is a real guy. He was a real person like you and me, but yet better than a meal with the Apostle Peter is a letter from the man himself, a handwritten letter. Actually, Silas probably helped him write it, but a letter from the Apostle Peter to you, to believers, 
That is amazing. It is staggering that the Lord not only inspired but delivered to us letters from the men who walked with Jesus. That would be an amazing dinner meal, wouldn't it be? To sit down with this man who knew Jesus, who walked with Jesus, who felt the things that Jesus was feeling, who watched Jesus labor to preach and to proclaim the kingdom and call people to repentance, who healed and did miracles and was sorrowful over the unbelief of his people, whose heart broke at their sin. Imagine that. And he wrote a letter. He wrote a letter. And this is why 1 Peter is one of the most beloved books because Peter was obviously a person like you and me. And what was he like? Well, Peter was a struggler. He was a sinner. He experienced conflict, heartache, failures in the face of immense pressure. You remember the night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus, Peter was right there and he was front and center for the chaos. This book is a spiritual shot in the arm to keep us from being too comfortable in this world and from failing to grasp the securing hope that is promised to us in eternal life. And that's what Peter wrote this letter for. As a fellow struggler, as a fellow Sinner who had been transformed by the power of Christ and given hope. And this morning, as we think about 1 Peter in these first couple of verses, we're going to see several features from 1 Peter that call us to press on, to press on as sojourners, as exiles, as immigrants. Because this is not our home, is it? This is not the final destination. We are sojourners. We are on our way to our home. Glory is coming. And we need to persevere. We need endurance. We need hope. And so Peter wrote this letter to help believers who were struggling, who were scattered, who were about to suffer. So that they would hold on. And we're going to see it in three parts this morning as we just take these first couple of verses. And, and then we'll actually pick up this next section, verses 3 through 5 or 3 through 6 on Resurrection Sunday. And it talks about us being born again to a living hope through the resurrection. So that'll be a glorious thing to come back to First Peter at Easter time. But we're going to see three things. The identity and the character of the author that will encourage your heart if you're a struggler. The content of Peter's letter will just overview some of those things and then the descriptions of those who read it. First, let's look at the identity and the character of the writer. And we need this letter because, partly because of who Peter is. This letter meets us right where we are. Peter was a changed man. He was. And we love Peter because he's so relatable. Look again at verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's one of his descriptions. But Peter was a member of a family just like you and me. 
He was a member of a a family of fishermen who lived in Bethsaida and later in Capernaum. And, And Andrew, Peter's brother, brought him to Christ. How many of you had a brother or a sister share Christ with you or, or were an example to you of what it looked like to follow Christ? And praise God for that. That's a very normal and relatable thing. He was married. His wife apparently uh, was with him in his ministries, his ministry endeavors. He didn't seem to have any formal theological training. In fact, we see in chapter 5, verse 12, again, it This is what it says. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Maybe he struggled to write. So he had a brother write these things down. It seems that Peter likely wrote just before or shortly after uh, AD 64 when the city of Rome burned and it was devastating. Sometime around 64 or 65 AD. And, and Peter is writing in a situation, in a context, where the Roman government is unstable. The, the culture is going crazy. It's pagan, full of idol worship. They worship Caesar. And Peter says, here I am, writing to you, one of the apostles, one of the 12. Chapter 5, verse 1, it says, he was an eyewitness of the sufferings of Christ, an eyewitness of Christ's sufferings. He was there watching Jesus suffer. Chapter 5, verse 2 says that he's a fellow elder. Flip over there just briefly. Look at, look at these verses. As we think about the identity and the character of Peter, Chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, as a fellow pastor, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Peter was one of the 12, which means his witness is reliable. We can trust it. He was with the Lord. Another good reason for us to read this book because we want to have reliable information. The word of God is reliable. It's the most reliable thing in the universe. But Peter's letter particularly, he was with, the, with Jesus himself is so encouraging for us. He was a fellow elder, which means he was responsible. He felt responsible for these believers. He was a pastor of people. He cared for people. He had burdens for people. And that they would know and love the Lord. They would be encouraged in their sufferings. That they would have other believers surrounding them to help them. Because he was just one elder among other elders. Amongst many sheep. And so we have a letter from a man who knew and saw. And lived alongside Christ. He was an elder. Humbled by Christ's kindness toward him. Think of it. You know that he had ringing in his ears Jesus' words to him as an under-shepherd, a pastor. Peter, do you love my sheep? Do you love them? Do you love me? Do you love me? And feed my lambs and shepherd my sheep. Care for the flock. 
give up your life for God, for my people. Imagine what that would have been like to be corrected by Jesus then. It was heartbreaking to imagine. And yet Jesus built him up and he commissioned him. And he used him. He used a broken man who had betrayed the very Son of God in, in his moment of greatest need, and then he restored him. Just like you and I, we who were opposed to the Lord, who rejected his kingship. Jesus made a friend, he made his enemy a friend, and he brought him near. He brings us near. A broken down man. He restored him. Peter's a lot like us. He's a lot like us spiritually. Outside, uh, maybe he seemed to have it all together, right? Remember what happened? He was sitting by a fire and a girl asked him, hey, aren't you one of Jesus? Aren't you one of those with Jesus, one of his disciples? And, And we know what happens from there. But you can relate to that a little bit, I think. If you're anything like me, some days someone asks you, hey, how are you doing? How's it going? How could I pray for you? And you're thinking, what do you know? What do you know about me? Did you fly a spy balloon over my house? And you know, now you know that I've had a really hard week or I've been angry at my kids or that I, you know, I've been impatient with my wife or I haven't led my family in prayer. What do you know? And we're kind of a spiritual basket case sometimes, aren't we? We, we think and feel life in such strange ways sometimes. And Peter was like that. He experienced those kinds of things. Riddled with guilt over his betrayal. I mean, just imagine daily having to fight to say, no, no, Christ has made me his own. I'm new. That's not me anymore. I belong to Jesus. I am with him. He loves me. He's going to use me. I want to be faithful. Lord, help me. And sometimes we think, well, everyone else around me seems to have it all together. They've, they've been a perfect Christian for what seems like their whole life. They don't have the problems that I do. But guaranteed, we all have the same kinds of problems. We're all sinners. So welcome to the club. We need To hear Peter's words, a fellow struggler, a sinner, to be built up by Christ. None of us have been perfect Christians. None of us will ever be perfect Christians until we're with the Lord Jesus. And even that will all be his grace. But Peter's been there. He struggled. He understood what it was like to be a wounded believer who was brought to the end of himself. And then built back up. And amazing enough, Peter, this fellow struggler like us, is also an apostle. <laughs> he, he was used to write letters of the New Testament despite his failures, despite his failings. He's an authorized spokesman on behalf of the Lord Jesus himself. That's amazing. But he's, he wasn't just anyone. He wasn't just a spokesman for just anyone. Peter is an apostle of Jesus not a dead man, no. But 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, Jesus is resurrected. And Peter knew that. Peter was there, wasn't he? Peter is an apostle of Jesus who is alive. He's a king. Chapter 4, verse 13. 
Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Jesus is glorious. He's alive. He's the king. And Jesus, Peter knew, will appear one day in glory and crowns of glory will be given to his people. Chapter 5, verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Peter knew it, and he was preaching it. And he was eager for that day. But not just to elders, like Peter says in in chapter 5, but Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9 that crowns of glory will be given to all of God's elect, all of his people, all of his saints. He is a gracious king. And so Peter, though imperfect, was an eyewitness. He was just a man like us. And he doesn't come to us as a doom and gloom, pessimistic pastor. He is optimistic because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And his character, his, his identity is an encouragement for us. There's an encouragement for us and there's a joy that Peter had because he knew that his sins were forgiven and that he could change, that he could grow, that he didn't have to stay in the the spiritual slum that he was in, but that whatever sin came along, whatever struggle, the Lord would be faithful to help him. And the book of 1 Peter is one of serious joy. Listen to just the last part of of verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. I actually read the beginning of Second Peter right there. I was on the wrong page. But it's very similar. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. And then verse 3. Blessed, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter is not a doom and gloom, pessimistic, pa- pessimistic pastor like I can be sometimes. But he's optimistic. And his character is an encouragement to us because he's a joyful man now in light of the grace of God. And so Peter is a helpful pastor to us. He's glad to follow Christ. I just have a question of application as we think about Peter's character and his identity. Does Christ make you happy? Are you joyful in him? when you think on the work that Christ has done in your life, does it conjure up joy and gladness? Or are you a doom and gloom Christian? Does anyone else know that you're glad to be a Christian by the way that you speak to them? Would anyone ever think that I'm happy to be a pastor by the way that I meet with them, the way that I pray with them, the way that I reach out to them? I hope so. Does anyone know that we are glad to be Christ's people because Peter was, because he had been restored and renewed and made new? So it's good for us to study 1 Peter because of the identity and the character of the writer. He was a changed man, but also because of the content of Peter's letter. I came across a a man a Scottish pastor named Robert Layton. Do you know who that is? Archbishop Robert Layton said that Peter wrote 
for three reasons. To establish them in believing, the believers in believing. To direct them in their doing and to comfort them in suffering. And that's really a great summary, I think, of the content of Peter's letter. It's to establish them in their believing, to ground them in sound doctrine, in in fundamental truths, to direct them in their life, to help them know how to live, and to comfort them in their suffering and in their trials. This is a book for suffering. And it's especially that last point that Peter comes back to over and over and over again. Chapter 1. Chapter 1, the trials that they're going through will bring them out, he says, like precious gold. You're going to go through trials, Christians, but these trials are not pointless. God has a purpose for your pain, and it's to bring you out refined like Peter had been, like Peter was being, refined and purified in your character, in your love and devotion for the Lord. And we're going to look at that more at the end here. But chapter 2, Peter addresses some accusations that they were facing. Do you know what it's like to be accused for following Christ? Well, we will, church. If you haven't already, it is coming. You're a bigot. You're closed-minded. You're narrow-minded. That's who you are in the world's eyes. And that's exactly what... The believers in the dispersion around Turkey and in the Roman Empire were experiencing suffering, persecution, primarily at this point, at least, and it was gearing up for violence, but social persecution. You remember who was ruling at the time? And again, chapter four talks about painful trials as Christians that they experience. Rome burned in 64 AD. And you remember how it's been told and depicted, even in, even in movies, even in Hollywood, that Christians at times uh, were, were suffering, even burning as, as lit candles in Nero's garden. I mean, this, is, this was demonic. It was evil. But it wasn't always like that. It, it grew. Peter knew that suffering was coming. It's coming. It's on the horizon. Get ready. And I believe that Peter wrote before all of that came in the year or two before this great persecution. And when Peter wrote, people weren't necessarily being slaughtered in the streets or crucified in mass. Although, as we know, Peter Peter is historically reported to have been crucified upside down, potentially. But the persecution was coming. Peter knew it. Look at verse 3, chapter 3, verse 5. Peter knew what was coming, and so he says to them things like this. Chapter 3, verse 15. First, just bump up a, a, a line. He says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, in your hearts, church, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. In other words, Jesus 
Jesus alone is Lord. Church, Jesus alone is King. He is the only Lord, right? He is the only God. We believe this. He is the only God and Savior. He is the only Almighty God. And you live in a world, church, that rejects that. You live in a world, in a society, that that kind of objective statement of the truth, that kind of clear-headed statement of the truth is not accepted. It doesn't fly in the culture that we're living in. And it's, this, it's the same, it was true of the early church in the first century. Honor Christ the Lord in your hearts as holy early young Christians. Young Christians scattered throughout Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. Honor Christ the Lord as, honor Christ as the Lord and as holy. He alone is Lord, not Caesar. And if you say that in first century Rome, they automatically know, oh, you're one of those and we reject you. There's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. Peter knew that. Jesus Christ alone is Lord, and this is the choking point for our society, and it was for them as well. And as soon as they declared that the Lord Jesus alone is the Lord God Almighty, it brought great social pressure, and it it will for you too. And church, that's why we need 1 Peter, because Peter is calling us, be ready. Be ready to give a defense Be ready. And don't be afraid. Don't fear them, but give a defense. Be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And what is the reason for our hope? It's because Jesus is Lord and we know him and he has known us and loved us and saved us and brought us to God. He is Lord. Don't be afraid. Be courageous. You won't die physically for that. You'll die socially for that. Just as the believers were experiencing in the first century here. But as soon as they declared that the Lord Jesus alone is the Lord God Almighty, it brought brought great social pressure. And so it was a natural progression. You think about it, to pin a great fire that destroyed Rome on the believers, which is exactly what happened or social upheaval on the Christians, and that is precisely what happened. So it goes without saying that that is the culture we're living in today. This is exactly the world that we live in today, isn't it? It is. And if we'll stand with the saints in First Peter, we too will see that we are exiles. We're outcasts who say, absolutely, Jesus is Lord. And that is the most real thing in the world. And our world says that there is no truth, that truth is, there is no objective truth or reality. And we say, that's wrong. Jesus is Lord. Amen, church? He is Lord. And we need to remember that. We need to preach that to one another. When we are struggling with our sin and saying, I can't get over this, we need to say, no, no, no. Your sin is not Lord. Your flesh is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And he can help you. 
When you're afraid of the pressures at work or school or from your family because they think you're narrow-minded or bigoted, you need to remember, no, Jesus, you are Lord. And they need to know you because they are a slave to other gods that do not save, that cannot save, that did not make the world, that cannot forgive sins. Lord, help me to be ready to give a defense and to declare the hope that I have in Christ. Church, the world needs hope. And the hope is that Jesus is Lord. That he is Lord. And so get ready, church. We need to get ready to lay our life on the line. He's worth dying for physically. He's worth dying for socially. And Peter knew Christ was worth living for and dying for. And we love to read of the martyrs. We love to read of saints who've gone before us and, and read about even their just gruesome deaths, even because we're, we're gripped by that. We want to be like that. But before their death, they died in other ways. Church, we need to pray that we're ready to embrace the cost. Lord, help us to be ready. Lord, help us to see that you are worth it. Help us. The content of Peter's letter is meant to establish us in believing, to direct us in our doing, and to comfort us in our suffering. Finally and third, let's look at the descriptions of those who read this letter. The description of those who read this letter. Turn back to Chapter 1, if you're not still there. He says, to those who are elect. Now, if you're like me, I read this, the first two verses, and you kind of skim through it. It's like, okay, it's just a salutation from Peter to the churches. Uh, and then you move on pretty quickly. But there are so many words in these first two verses that just pop out off the page, especially uh, if you're interested in thinking about election and predestination and those things. Because that's what Peter is talking about here. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Well, what's the dispersion? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with blood. Now, we won't be able to go into all of this all right now, but first, as we think about the description of those who read it, Peter wants to remind them. He wants to establish in their minds, in their hearts, that you were known before you were born. Christian, your faith is not flimsy. It's not weak. The, the work that Jesus did on the cross is rock solid. You were known before you were born and God knew you and loved you and saved you according to his eternal plan. Now, if you've never heard that before, go to our church website and read in our doctrinal statement. We love this. We believe this with all of our hearts. We are not saved by our own good deeds. God did not look down the quarters of time and, and see who would be a good person or who would love him in response. But no, the, the scripture tells us that these believers are chosen. They are elect. And that election has to do with God's foreknowledge. God knows everything and he knew everything and has known everything for all of eternity, including those whom he would save by his grace. That is glorious and mind-boggling. They were known before they were born. 
Not only do we see that these young believers were geographically located, they were scattered throughout what's modern day Turkey. Do we have anyone from Turkey here? Maybe not. Uh, But modern day Turkey, when you read these places, Galatia, Pontus, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, modern Turkey. These believers had been scattered to the, the outer reaches of the Roman Empire because persecution was rising and the gospel was going forward. The Great Commission was in play. And God is doing what he planned to do, which was take the gospel to the Gentiles, which is what the book of Acts is all about and what Peter and, and the apostles were preaching in the book of Acts. And the Gentiles, I believe it's in Acts chapter 14, they say, They were amazed when they heard that the gospel must go to the nations, and they believed. And so not only were these young believers scattered geographically, and and that's maybe the way that the letter would be circulated in order uh, that they would all read it throughout that region, but he describes these believers as some keywords, elect, or you could say chosen. He also says that they were foreknown, or you could say predestined. And just briefly, in the New Testament, as we think about these phrases, particularly the word foreknown, look at verse 2. It says, according to the foreknowledge. And, and what I think, is, what, what I, from what I can tell from my study in this text, is that in verse 2, there's three prepositional phrases. I know, I'm getting nerdy here. Uh, according to... In, or by means of, or, or uh, yeah, in the sanctification and for obedience. According to, in, and for. Those phrases are modifying, are, are connected to the fact that they are elect exiles. To the elect exiles who were, number one, who are elect according to the foreknowledge of God, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus and for sprinkling with blood. In the New Testament, as it pertains to events, of course, we know that God knows something before it happens. God knows all events, all things before they happen. And with people, it carries the idea that he not only knew of us or knew about us or that we would exist, but that he loved us before we loved him. We were chosen In God's love, God in his love chose to save you. And that is glorious. He says we've been elected or we've been called out. We've been chosen by the work of the Spirit of God. And just as these believers who were saved were called out of their sin and then were sent to be exiles... That was part of God's choosing of them to send them. So you have been called out of your sin. God elected you. He loved you before you knew him. Before you had even heard of him. He, if you are in Christ today, saved you by his grace. And he had planned to do it from eternity past. I can see the smoke, you know. I can hear the frying of the, you know, of the wires in your brains, right? I mean, it, it, it boggles our mind. It is glorious. And then he uses these phrases, according to the foreknowledge of God. We're we're elect according to the foreknowledge of God. In the sanctification of the Spirit, or set apart by the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus and for sprinkling with his blood. 
There's a really fascinating verse in, in verse, chapter 1, verse 20. Look at this about foreknowledge. God knowing beforehand. He was, who is this he? Well, it's Jesus, the precious lamb, the spotless lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. That's the other time in this text that the word foreknowledge is used. 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul uses it in this way. Chapter 8, verse 3, he says this. If anyone loves God, he has been chosen by God. You did not choose God. He chose you. He did. And one of the reasons for that is that it makes us humble. First of all, unconditional election, God's choosing of us makes us humble. Otherwise, we would become proud. We would think, well, I did something. I, I returned. Uh, I responded to the Lord. Look what I did. But God says, no, no, no. You're elect, and that was my choosing. You are predestined, and that was my knowing. And may grace and peace be multiplied to you, the grace that God intended to pour out on you from eternity past that you could never earn, you could never deserve, you could never merit. It's all grace. It's all grace. And so is our life now. It's all grace. We were saved by grace. He showed us our need for the Savior by grace. He exposed the wretchedness of our sin by grace. And now, as believers who've been saved by grace, we go on in grace, which means when we sin and when we stumble and when we struggle on our way to glory, it's grace that makes us say, Lord, forgive me. I've sinned again today. Will you help me? Brother, sister, I'm struggling. Will you help me today? It's grace that looks at a brother and sister and doesn't prejudge and say, well, if I tell them, they'll just think I'm a loser and I'm not going to share with them. But no, grace sets us on a path of enjoying God's kindness toward us, even in the hard things of bearing one another's burdens and confessing our sins to one another. Grace changes everything and it's grace from eternity past. It's good for us to pause for a moment as we think about these things. Unconditional election, election makes us humble. Unconditional means there was nothing that we did. There were no conditions that we must or could meet before God would choose us or save us. No, it was unconditional. We contributed nothing. But the price for our salvation, for our redemption was great. It was at the cost of Jesus, his son, his own blood. Peter wanted them to hear and and see and remember that even though they had been exiled, 
cast to the outer parts of society and from home that a Trinitarian act of love, and I want you to see this, had chosen and loved and was sustaining them even through their present and upcoming tribulations. Not only did God choose, but it is Trinitarian in its substance. Look again. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ. There were others involved in your salvation, but it wasn't primarily you. It was God. It was God. Who who saved you in your sin. It was God who did not pour out on you the judgment and the condemnation that your sins deserve, but instead he poured it out on his son. It was God, the Trinity, who did that. And it's glorious. It is amazing. They were known before they were even Born. They were foreknown from before the foundations of the world, from eternity past. This is our God. But also they were bought with the precious blood. They were bought with precious blood for obedience. This is how they were described in this text. Just as God is the one who brought the Egyptians up out of Egypt... So did the Lord bring us up out of the world by his electing love. And we were bought with precious blood. That's what the word ransom means. It means to release or to redeem or or being rescued out by a, a price that had to be paid. And we were ransomed. And it says that they were foreknown. Or they were known and loved. They were foreknown by God before the foundation of the world. And they were sanctified and set apart by the Spirit for obedience to Jesus. For sprinkling. And and I I just think that's new covenant language. Blood would be sprinkled. It would be poured out on the altar on, uh, on behalf of the person and their own sin. It should be their blood being spilled, but it was Jesus's instead. And for cleansing and for sanctification, for obedience. And, and this is the goal. And, and there's a hint, actually, I think, in verses 17 to 19. Look at those verses with me. Chapter 1, verses 17 to 19. He says this. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. You were ransomed from certain ways. This is what this obedience and this sprinkling for blood has to do with. You were ransomed from ways of living, for new ways of living, and ways of obedience, joyful, loving obedience to the Lord. He says, you were ransomed from futile ways, the empty, damnable, God-dishonoring ways, and he has now set you on a path in different ways. And so, 
we're reminded of what it costs to get us to be obedient. It was precious blood. You were ransomed by the precious blood of Christ in order to make you obedient. And so when you're struggling to obey, kids, when you are saying, Lord, I need help to obey my parents, you remember that Jesus died in your place. He poured out his blood so that your blood doesn't have to be poured out. You don't have to die for your own sins. Jesus died. And if you will look to him and say, Jesus, will you help me? Will you help my heart to love obedience because of what you did on the cross? He loves to answer those prayers. Help me to love you rather than my sin. Help me to turn from sin and obey because of what Jesus did for me. We're reminded what it costs. And so the question is this, are there any patterns of life that we're that we are walking in that are not obedient to Jesus? Are there patterns of life that we're walking in that are not obedient to Jesus? Brother and sister, you need to consider this. You need to take inventory of your life. This is what we need to do when we consider the precious blood of Jesus poured out for us and the sprinkling of the blood And the work of God's Spirit sanctifying us, that is transforming us, conforming us into the image of Christ. We need to be asking the Lord, Lord, by your grace, would you show me areas of my life that are part of the futile ways that I used to live in and I don't want to live in anymore? Will you help me? Are there patterns of life that you're walking in that are scorning the blood of Christ? And if so, we can confess it and we can forsake it And we can be done with it by God's grace. And Peter draws attention to the worth of the blood of Christ. This blood was poured out so that we might be obedient. And so if we choose to walk in the ways for which we were ransomed from, we're we're, we're turning our backs, we're thumbing our nose at the blood infinitely valuable and infinitely offensive, which God in eternity past determined, planned to pour out on behalf of sinners like you and me, that we might walk in obedience to him. To make us joyful and willing exiles, those who are, who are not a part of this world. This is not our home anymore, but we have a destination that is glorious Church, Peter wants to help us to be joyful, willing exiles who bear witness to the transforming power of God through Christ by our loving obedience to the King. This is what the new covenant produces. God removing a heart of stone and giving a heart of flesh that wants to obey his word, that says, Lord, your words are like life to me. I want to do them. Help me. And so, here is how practical the doctrine of the Trinity can be, isn't it? The doctrine of the Trinity relates to all things in our lives as Christians. He elected us, God, our triune God, predestined and loved us before we were born to save us, to draw us into loving relationship with Him so that His grace and His peace might be multiplied to us 
over and over and over again as we draw near to him through his blood. This is God's plan. And so it's no wonder then that Peter says grace and peace be multiplied to us. It's no wonder. The the wonder of redemption worked out for us by the triune God does not grant us mild grace or peace, but abundant grace and peace that are multiplied to us and freely given to his elect exiles. And maybe one of the most encouraging and important passages related to this is Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30. Just jot that down and read it later. But in light of God's electing and and for love, his, his pre-love of sinners like us from eternity past. This is what Paul says. I'll just read a couple of these verses. He says this, for those whom he foreknew, same word, those whom he foreknew in verse 29, he also predestined, or those whom he elected, those whom he chose, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The calling of Romans 8.30, that calling, that calling is irresistible. Faith creating grace. It's his grace poured out on you who weren't looking for him, who didn't love him, He loved you. And this is what Peter wants to help his readers set their minds on as they gear up for and walk through troubled times. May we draw near to him through his abundant grace toward us day by day as we sojourn on our journey and on our way to glory together. We need to draw near to Christ. And if you've never drawn near to Christ before, if you've never forsaken your sin and come to Jesus, come to him who is willing to save sinners, today is that day. And if you're fooling yourself by saying, yes, I'm with Jesus, but your life is not one of obedience and joyful obedience to the Lord, not easy necessarily, but not joyful obedience that isn't turning from sin then don't fool yourself any longer. Turn and forsake it and he will meet you. He will receive you. He will help you. There's abundant grace and mercy in Christ. Don't pretend anymore. Come to him. Come and find someone here near the piano afterward to pray with or at the kiosk, one of our greeters. We'd love to pray with you and help you to know this Christ to know his grace. Don't wait any longer. Church, let me pray for us in these things. Lord God, if you are for us, who can be against us? You didn't spare your own son, but you gave him up for us. And you graciously give us all things in your son. And so we know that No one, no one can bring any charge against your elect because it's you who justify. Lord, we are sojourners. We feel like exiles because we are. 
We're not of this world anymore. But we know that you've sent us into the world. You make us your ambassadors, your heralds, and so help us to be faithful. Help us to remember that just like Peter, we are those who needed to be put back together because of our sin, who needed to be ransomed from our sin, who needed to be humbled to see our need. And Lord, help us to remember that this is not our home. Help us to remember that we, as a brother said this week, as I, as I heard a recording, we are just a passing through. We are on our way to glory. Jesus, you are coming, and we say come soon, but help us, help us until we do, to live for you, to be faithful, just like Peter wanted for these elect exiles. May you help us, in Jesus' name, amen.